Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Prime Minister is in Hamilton today to begin his government's cabinet retreat. We'll discuss that and more with Dr. Lori Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Former CSIS analyst Phil Gursky will join us to talk about a court order for the federal government to repatriate four Canadian men who have been detained in Syria. And we cover things in American politics with Reggie Cicchini's weekly Washington Report. All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister is in Hamilton uh, with his cabinet for the next couple of days uh, for what we're told is uh, basically a, a strategy session for the upcoming session of Parliament. Uh, the ongoing affordability crunch, the threat of looming recession uh, front and center, I'm sure, as uh, the Prime Minister and the cabinet uh, hold sessions in downtown Hamilton. Brenda Molina Navidad has some details for us. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his ministers will spend the next three days taking stock of their agenda. As Canadians feel the pinch of more than a year of heightened inflation and are now bracing for the possibility of a recession. Trudeau says cost of living and job creation are his priorities for the talks. The federal government is also working to secure a new long-term health care funding arrangement with the provinces. And the health minister will update his colleagues on the progress of the talks. Brenda Molina Navidad, the Canadian Press. Uh, by the way, this is going to be the, su- the subject of our uh, last call segment, 11.30 this morning, where we open the lines up and get your reaction uh, to what they're going to be talking about and what the priorities should be. Uh, to give you a preview on that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Lori Turnbull. Dr. Turnbull is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Lori, thank you so much for the time. Happy Monday. Good to have you with us yep. today. Happy Monday to you too, Bill. Uh, the Conservatives had their little session uh, get-together in Ottawa. The NDP had their... their what, what goes on behind closed doors here? What are they actually doing? Uh, I guess it's next week they actually begin the, the next session of Parliament. Is is this strategy? Is this who's going to do what? Is, what are we going to vote for? That sort of thing. Like it, It's a sort of like, let's get together and think about how the rest of the session is going to go. And so what did we want to accomplish between now and when we break for the summer? And so for the government, that's going to be a lot about like which pieces of legislation do we want to get through? Um, how, you know, what is the, what's the order of operations? How do we want to do that? And then for the opposition parties, it's as you say, right? Like how are they going to vote on things? What sorts of strategies will they use communications wise? So it's not just about what the vote's going to be. It's also about like, how are we going to explain this to people and what sort of leverage do we want to get out of it? They'll definitely all be talking about uh, their strategies with respect to healthcare and how, how this is all going to happen with the provinces. Lots of, of turmoil between federal and provincial uh, it, partners right now. It's, it's such a kind of strained time and, and premiers are really, um, you know, kind of holding the, the federal government's feet to the fire. So, yeah, uh, really interesting times. So, especially in a minority parliament like this, and we heard some mm-hmm. of the comments from uh, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, last week, basically uh, repeating his, his his manifesto, I suppose, that if he doesn't get his pharmacare bill signed, sealed, and delivered by the end of the year, he's going to pull the plug. Uh, how much pressure is he under right now to do something like that and force an election? Or, or I guess the other side of the coin is how much pressure is he under to not do that simply because of how that may impact the NDP themselves? It's true. He's in a particularly uh, critical situation, I think, at this point, because last year when they announced this this confidence and supply agreement, like that was kind of a new thing, right? Like it was shiny. It was it was something that people were talking about, and it indicated that the government was in fact stable and not at risk of being defeated. And so we weren't going to another yet another election as long as the NDP got what they wanted on these kind of core areas. 
And so now the agreement is a year old almost. And I think there needs to be something coming from the NDP to show either this is what our value added is. This is why it's better to have the NDP as part of this agreement, as opposed to acting like just another opposition party. We're getting more mileage and here's why, like he needs to show that, but I think he also needs to get a bit more out of it. Like he, so we see his language is becoming more concrete. It's not just, we're looking for government action on X. It's, I want a piece of legislation that gets through the house or else I'm out. But for him, he's also looking at a period where, there seems to be some of the progressive vote leaving the liberals and coming to the NDP. So is he going to go to election because he wants to capitalize on that, even though he risks a polyev plurality and might have to support him if he wants to keep going in this mm. space he's got, you know, is, and even like number of seats, isn't necessarily the whole story. Like in relative terms, would the NDP be better off risking it going to election and, and see what comes back? Because right now, you know, depending on how he plays his hand, he's in a powerful position. Well, and as uh, Chantal LaBear wrote about, uh, I guess it was late last week in the Toronto Star, uh, it's it's a it's a gamble, isn't it? No matter what he does. Yeah. And she related to the story about uh, when Paul Martin was prime minister, he was in the same situation as Trudeau. He was trying to get this, this health reform between the provinces yeah. and the federal government all through, thought he had a deal. Uh, but Jack Layton, who was the NDP leader at the time, pulled his support and said, no, there's too much private sector stuff in there. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, and and yeah. that forced an election. Well, he ended up with Stephen Harper, and Harper didn't want to play ball with him. So, you know, who really won there? Well, that's it. And I think exactly that's what Singh has to be thinking about. We can hear Singh be really hardline on healthcare right now, whereas the Trudeau government is basically, it seems to me anyway, they're sort of playing it a bit more cool. They He has described what's happening in Ontario or what will be happening in Ontario is innovation. And Dominic LeBlanc, I saw him do the morning shows yesterday, and he was basically like, look, you know, we're, we're just open to better healthcare. And so he's, it seems to me the feds are keeping their powder dry on this, which suggests to me they're going to let Ford experiment as he wants and they're not going to try to stop him, which may, may or may not be good. But Singh is going to be hard pressed to be on a side of things that supports further privatization of health. Like that's going to be the hardest sell for him that I can think of. And so is there a way for him to continue to play ball with Trudeau and still kind of make sure they're getting their points in on healthcare because that's going to resonate with the NDP base big time. And so I don't know, like he's, he's in a tough spot right now. Well, as I mentioned in my commentary earlier this morning on CHML, is uh, I'm, I'm looking at political strategy here too, yeah. and and you know the the ideological uh, politician would look at this and say, well, no, we don't want any private health care. Well, it's it's been part of our system since the mid 1960s. I know exactly. our family doctors are private, etc. So we can get into that, but. From a political standpoint, I'm sure the prime minister is looking at this and say, "Why pick a fight with with Doug Ford when I don't need to?" Uh, you know, he they're never going to be buddy buddy. You know, Doug Ford's never going to knock on doors for Justin Trudeau if there's another election, uh, yeah. but he can stay out of it like he did the last two federal elections, and that maybe didn't cause him to win, but it didn't hurt either that the the premier was not uh, campaigning for Aaron O'Toole or for you know uh, Sheer before that. So th- I think there's a strategy at play here too. I think there's a strategy in play as well. And I mean, Trudeau's already got fights with Legault, Smith. She's got an election this year. Like, I I think you're right. I think why would Trudeau 
enter into that space if he doesn't need to. And he doesn't need to come out and pound the pavement for Doug Ford either. He doesn't need to come out and talk about how great this is going to be when there's more privatization in Ontario. He doesn't need to do any of that. Just let Doug Ford own it and wear it and take, you know, take the the oxygen for that. And one of the interesting things that's happening now, and I can, you know, I can think back to different times where conservative politicians, both provincially and federally, made even passing reference to further privatization in healthcare. And the response was just shut down. Absolutely not. You know, people wouldn't even think of that. Whereas now I honestly think one of the more interesting thing that's ha- things that's happening in Ontario is the way the, the Ford government is managing the communications around the these these changes that they're proposing in healthcare, and even though some people are absolutely going to not be in favor and are going to be worried about a slippery slope, and we're hearing some of that, it seems to me that the public response to this proposal is quite different than it would have been fifteen or twenty years ago. I think people see, oh my god, you know things are really dire at this point, and we need to do something. And so you know it, it becomes a trust issue with Ford. I think like do people trust him when he says you're going to use your OHIP card, not your credit card? And if they do, then I think he's going to have quite, quite a lot of runway, actually, to to do what Trudeau is describing as innovation. I, I, I see your point, and, and I've got a lot of reservations about Ford's plan. I mean, the impact mm-hmm. it may have on hospital staffing and things like that. I don't know that they've thought this whole thing out. But as, uh, well, Tori Kanek was a, a former Stephen Harper advisor, of course, was on with Vashi Capellos yesterday mm-hmm. and uh, and made that void point. He says, look, at, he says, you know, it was Kathleen Wynne that brought in the, the you know, the for-profit uh, clinics to start working on cataracts and stuff. And she's hardly a conservative. Uh, so he says, maybe people have just kind of, as you say, softened their view on this and say, yep, let's give it a shot because what we're doing here just isn't working. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I'm thinking too about an episode of the Hurley Burley where he had three former premiers talking about healthcare. One of them was Stephen McNeil, who, who was premier in my province. And his, he was just flat. Like, listen, you know, we, we can't be talking in terms of everybody having a family doctor. We need to completely re- rethink things with respect to community care. Like, how are we actually going to do this? 50%, like 50 cents of every dollar a premier has is spent on healthcare. And so have we kind of gotten to a point where the conversations are happening in a different way because we need to be thinking differently. And this is going to be something that happens different, differently in every province too. Like what works for Ontario is definitely not going to work for Nova Scotia with a smaller, older population where chronic il- illnesses is more of a thing per capita. Like it's everything is going to have to be managed in a way that's responsive to the province. And that seems to be part of the rhetoric that's coming from the federal government too, is more of a, you know, we're trying to maintain a standard and a quality of healthcare, but how that actually gets sorted in every province might look different. How important is it for the prime minister to get this thing done? And and how important is it for him for him to have Ontario on side? I mean, they dragged their heels on the childcare thing. Uh, they were the last one to sign on. Uh, it'd be, I'm sure, the prime minister would just love to have Ontario as one of the people up front to sign on this thing, this, this which apparently is coming within the next couple of days. Right. I mean, I think we are talking critical legacy piece here. Right. If this doesn't get sorted, this is going to be disastrous for the Trudeau government. Now, they're on their third term and he's been the leader for 10 years and he's been the prime minister for seven and a half years. And so one could argue that the government is a bit, you know, perhaps getting to the point where they we we might see voter fatigue set in and something change here. But um, this is a critical legacy piece. 
And Trudeau has always wanted to make the kinds of progress he wants to make in areas of social policy that are essentially provincial jurisdiction. And so childcare, healthcare, all those sorts of things are where Trudeau's, you know, ideas have, have been like when he talks about growing the middle class, a lot of this stuff is really about those social programs that are provincial jurisdiction. So he's working in areas where it's not things he can do on his own. It's things he needs to get these agreements on. And so I think this is absolutely critical for him, but it's also critical that people accept it. Signing a deal is, is one thing, but if people are like, yeah, but nothing's changing and nothing's getting better. And the results, like when will the results of this deal actually be felt once it's passed? And oh my goodness, if we had another 11th hour, somebody pulls out of it because they don't like something like that would be disastrous. Well, and there's always that possibility, isn't there? You mentioned Danielle Smith in Alberta, uh, Legault in Quebec, but Quebec always seems to get a kind of a sweetheart deal out of every one of these things anyway. They're, they're, they're separate and apart, so I'm not so sure that's going to resonate with people. But again, as, as Chantal Hebert mentioned in her piece about this, this whole topic, uh, even Pierre Polyev, I think, wants to see this thing get done, not necessarily because he agrees with it, but if he's going to become prime minister at some point in the future, he doesn't want this hanging around his neck. Well, that's it, because if it was, if if we got to the point that another election brought in him as prime minister and this thing was still ongoing, there would be some bad blood by that point. Like this, these would not be happy conversations, not that they're happy now, but it would be even worse if this is something that's been kind of carried over and they had some false starts and people were ticked off and, you know, like that, it would be even worse. So yeah, I think you're right. He doesn't want to necessarily inherit this as an issue that hasn't been solved yet. But it's interesting to think about how like any dimension of federal provincial interaction is never existing in a vacuum, obviously. So they're having this conversation around healthcare, but the prime minister is also talking about, you know, talking to the court about premier's use of the notwithstanding clause that's got Legault all pissed off. So all these other things are going to factor into the conversations around healthcare if they go on too long. Uh, yeah, I, uh, we can get into the notwithstanding clause another time when we have another couple of hours to kill. Uh, Laurie, always great to get your insight into this. Thanks so much. Have a good week. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. It's going to be a very active week uh, with uh, the Prime Minister and his cabinet uh, in town in Hamilton uh, the next two or three days, I guess. Uh, but once they get back into the, the the bear pit, as it was, of the House of Commons, and they start actually uh, hashing and thrashing around some of this uh, legislation that's forthcoming. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Four men, including uh, somebody who has actually admitted to being an ISIS uh, supporter and fighter, uh, have been uh, ordered by the uh, the courts. Uh, the, this is the Canadian government, actually, has ordered uh, these these government officials to repatriate four Canadian men who have been detained in Syria. Uh, it's caused a great deal of uh, backlash and pub, uh, public outcry about this, about exactly who these people might be, why they're over there in the first place, and was that even part of the decision made by the court here? I'm going to bring uh, Phil Gursky into the conversation. Phil is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, a uh, distinguished fellow at the University of Ottawa's National Security Program. Of course, he's a former CSIS analyst and uh, frequent guest on the program. Uh, Phil, as always, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me back on the program today. Well, listen, when we see situations like this and, and refugee camps and some of the horrific things that are going on there uh, in, in different parts of, of these war-torn countries, uh, our hearts go out to these people. And, and the courts, of course, have become involved in this. Uh, but let's talk about who these people are. And by the way, these we're talking about these four men. Uh, there are a number of women and children that are involved in this as well. But who are these people? Well, 
You know, you raise a really good point, Bill. And, and interestingly, in the court decision, there was no reference made to why they were there. The court decision was all about their right to return to Canada. And I don't think anybody uh, denies they have a right to return to Canada. The question becomes, should it be at the government's expense, i.e. the taxpayer's dime? Uh, they got themselves there to ISIS on their own dime. Maybe they should use their own dime to come back. So I, I think one of the, you talked about public disapproval of this particular decision. I think that's what it comes to. First of all, is that the government's going to use probably, ta- if the government's involved, it'll be taxpayers' money to repatriate ISIS terrorists. And then there's the whole issue of what threat they, they, they pose. Can they be tried in a Canadian court? Where's the evidence? Where the witnesses and things like that? So it's a much more complicated story than their partisans have been portraying so far. And the other thing that really bothers me, Bill, it's sort of a segue to, you know, to your question. Uh, what bothers me is they're, they're being portrayed as victims. And there's no question that the conditions in Al-Hol were horrendous, especially for the children. But the reason they were in Al-Hol, Bill, is because they joined ISIS. They, they, they weren't there on a sunwing vacation. They, they didn't have their flight diverted from Cancun. They went to Iraq and Syria to join ISIS. And so that's why they, they were in horrendous conditions in the first place. But the court decision here, as I'm just glossing over this, it says they haven't been charged with anything. Is, 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 given the fact that they've identified themselves as ISIS fighters, uh, is that unusual that, that, that the, the government has not moved forward with charges against them? It should be, because it is an offense under the criminal code, under Section 83 of the Canadian Criminal Code, to join a terrorist organization. And by the way, ISIS is a listed terrorist organization. So Public Safety Canada maintains uh, what they call a list of terrorist entities. I know, because I worked on the Al-Qaeda one way back in 2002. It's constantly updated, and ISIS is on there. So it, it does strike me as a bit odd that, that no charges have been laid to date. But again, this, this speaks to a greater issue, Bill, and it's that all the information that, that relates to their what they did in Iraq and Syria is over there. The witnesses are over there. The victims are over there. The evidence is over there. And I am rather skeptical that what, that if and when these cases come to court, that the Crown will succeed because simply they're not going to have enough information on which to gain a, a guilty verdict or a guilty decision by a judge, which is why I've been advocating since day one that they should be tried there uh, under international courts if necessary, where the witnesses are locally available, where the evidence is placed before the court, and where a sound judicial decision can be made. Yet the Syrian government has not done that. Is is it because of the, the over, overwhelming number of people that, that are in this circumstance, or do they just don't care? Probably a bit of both. And, you know, um, it stands to reason, too, Bill, that the Syrian government is a vile dictatorship under the Assad. I don't think anyone expects yeah. a fair trial in Syria. But then again, as I said, I mean, as much as we can not agree with, you know, Syrian justice system, we can't tell the Syrians what to do or what not to do. If you commit a crime in a foreign country... You're subject to that country's uh, jurisdiction and that country's judicial system. So I don't know why people are complaining about, you know, all these poor people. They might get tried in, in a Syrian court. Well, they ended up in Syria joining a terrorist group bill. And how many hundreds, if not thousands, of Syrians were killed by ISIS from 2014 to 2019? So, it, you know what, it, it's become a real... It, to me, that the court decision doesn't address the major issues. Yes, the, the right to return was always there. If they could get themselves back, they had a right to return to Canada, Canadian citizens. The contention was, should the Canadian government facilitate that return? And my, my position is the answer is no. Uh, it, you know, we shouldn't be paying taxpayers' money uh, to bring people back who left our country willingly, deliberately, to join a listed terrorist group, which, which, which was a heinous terrorist group, Bill. I mean, they killed tens of thousands of people. You know, the, the ISIS record isn't unknown, and it wouldn't have been unknown to them when they left. And that's what bothers me. Well, they didn't know what they were getting into. Everybody knew what ISIS stood for in 2014. 
one man in particular who was among these four men that we just talked about, a fellow by the name of Jack Letts, uh, who is, is a self-confessed ISIS uh, member, uh, said he went over there to join ISIS. Uh, he's been in prison for the last four years. I guess he's one of the people, uh, the few people, I guess, that they did prosecute. Uh, does he, does this come under the guise of, of a, a person who's coming back to serve out the rest of his sentence? Or if this goes forward, is Mr. Letts get off the plane in Montreal or wherever it's going to be uh, as a free man? I have no idea what's going to happen to Jack Letts. You know, he's going to play the victim card, Bill. He's going to play the card that he was treated abominably in a Syrian prison, which he may, he may in fact have done. But the fact is, is that, you know, we had somebody join an Islamic, Islamic State of terrorist group. Do we know what he did for ISIS? Do we know what crimes he, he, he took part in while he was over there? No, we don't. Again, because the witnesses and the evidence are over there. I'll go one further, Bill. Not only will Jack Letts likely, and I'm, I don't have a crystal ball, likely not face significant penalty once he comes here to Canada. I'm smelling lawsuits by these people down the road uh, saying, why didn't you rescue us further? And we've seen this country has a, has a history of paying out lawsuits to terrorists. So I hope I'm wrong on that one, Bill, but um, I've got a sneaking suspicion I'm not. There are a number of people, as I say, men and women, but let's we'll focus on, on these, these four men at, this, at the same time. Uh, Lawrence Greenspan, of course, who's a, a well-known uh, lawyer who's uh, involved in many of these cases and has been over the years, uh, simply says that if they've committed crimes, uh, they should be put on trial over here. Uh, but as you just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that's a pretty hollow statement. I think Mr. Greenspan is well aware of the fact that there is almost, no, as you mentioned, no evidence uh, to, to be able to lay charges, let alone get a conviction on any of these things. I mean, you know, who are they going to call? Somebody who's in one of these camps already uh, who can't get over here? So that, that's not going anywhere. But you have to ask yourself, because we've seen this happen before, uh, are, are have any of them renounced uh, ISIS, or are they simply coming over here to maintain the values there and, and do what who knows what uh, on Canadian soil? Well, we, we don't know if they've... Well, okay, renounced ISIS. I've seen lots of people renounce ISIS, or Al-Qaeda, or Al-Shabaab, whatever, Bill. And this is a nudge, nudge, wink, wink. They don't really renounce it. We had a famous case back in 2019 in the U.K., where a guy who'd been convicted of being an ISIS member in the U.K. had been through a so-called de-radicalization program, was was touted out as a star performer. He had, you know, he had understood the error of his ways. He wanted to help society. And at a public function, he stabbed to death two members of the Correctional Services Program before he was shot dead by police. So these um, confessions, if you want to call them that, that a buck, in a buck and a half, get you a cup of coffee at Tim's, as far as I'm concerned. You need to look at the uh, not just the evidence, but the intelligence that, that either we have here in Canada or other intelligence agencies have to determine if there's any real basis to these so-called abandonments of Islamic State. Uh, again, you know, the, the, the partisans that I've been engaged with for the past couple of years, Bill, they're ignoring all this stuff. And their sole uh, campaign and their sole purpose has been to get these people home and to paint them as victims. And that's what really bothers me as, as a Canadian, is they're not victims, they're victimizers. They joined a terrorist group, which, you know, like I said, not only killed tens of thousands of people, but try, basically engaged in the genocide of the Yazidi people. One more thing, Bill, the day they announced that the court decision was announced, was the same day that the German government pronounced a genocide by ISIS on the Yazidi people. So the Germans are accusing ISIS of genocide, and we're bringing ISIS terrorists home. What kind of message does that send? Exactly. I got about 10 seconds left here, but very quickly. If they are admitted members of ISIS, and ISIS is an illegal organization as you know, by Canadian law, why don't they get arrested as soon as they step off the plane? Well, again, how do you prove it? Right? Do you have, do they have a membership card? Do they have an ISIS tattoo on their forehead? Again, they, you know, what they did, what they did, and where they joined, it's all over their bills, not here. And, and, the, and the crowd is going to have a hard time proving that. A uh, very difficult situation. Always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much, Phil. My pleasure, Bill. Have a nice day.
You too. Phil Gursky, uh, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, of course, a former CSIS analyst, too, who's been involved in cases like this for many, many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a, a well, a tragic week, of course, in some parts of the states, another mass shooting, actually a couple of them over the last few days, uh, that uh, we're still learning something about. And of course, uh, Washington, well, Washington was Washington, uh, with more uh, Biden documents, uh, confidential documents uh, uncovered uh, late last week and into the early morning hours of this weekend. Uh, what are the implications of that? Uh, joining us to talk about all of these uh, uh, issues, of, of course, is uh, Reggie Giacchini. Reggie is the Washington correspondent uh, for Global News in Washington. Uh, Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, amid these tragedies, uh, mass shootings, and, and the one particularly in California, uh, with at least 10 people dead right now, uh, we've identified, at least they, I think they've identified uh, the shooter, but we don't much, know much else about this, about motive or anything else, do we? No, Bill, uh, there's no motive that's known uh, just yet. The the suspect, uh, reportedly a 72-year-old man that was found inside of a white van many kilometers away uh, from the scene uh, of the shooting. Uh, and it's believed that there may have been some kind of a connection here. Uh, the suspect believed to have kind of frequented this dance club over the years, uh, reportedly meeting his ex-wife in this club uh, as well. But with 10 people dead, the suspect dead, it makes it much more difficult for uh, investigators to be able to piece the, the pieces together or put the puzzle together. We know that late last night a search warrant was obtained to be able to go through uh, the suspected gunman's house. Uh, but this this really is um, kind of a, a reality check here that, that gun violence, while we don't talk about it all that much in the United States, is a significant problem. And the Gun Violence Archive Bill, which kind of tracks mass shootings where four people are injured or killed or more, uh, this would be the 33rd, at least the, the incident on Saturday, was the 33rd mass shooting in the United States, and that would have only been uh, within the first 21 days of the year. Well, it's we are watching the coverage over the last 24 hours or so, Reggie, and, and I'm glad you brought that up about the, that legislation. What struck me was, was what I wasn't hearing. Uh, another tragedy, we, we mentioned 10 people dead, but a number of others wounded, uh, and hopefully they're going to recover, and, and some other shootings, almost as you say, uh, so many of them that they basically sometimes don't even make the newscasts. But what I'm not hearing over the last uh, 24 to 36 hours uh, are the politicians who are jumping up and saying, look, we have to do something about guns and gun control, uh, I, as if, you know, thoughts and prayers. I mean, the, the cliches we've already heard. Uh, are Americans becoming so numb to this right now that it's it's tragedy, but but they just figure, well, it's inevitable. I think that that's a reality uh, in the United States. I mean, look, last May uh, when I was in Uvalde, there were you know, 19 kids in a school were killed. Uh, fast forward to where we are uh, just this year, and, and this is now the deadliest shooting in the United States uh, since Uvalde. And over the weekend, uh, there was a shooting as well uh, in and around uh, uh, New Orleans or in Louisiana, where another dozen or so people were shot. This is just kind of ingrained into the, the fabric of the United States. And there have been significant efforts to try and reduce gun violence. That includes some uh, big legislation that was moved during the Biden administration over the last couple of years to try and limit the kinds of weapons people can have or at least open up uh, uh, kind of uh, abilities to flag people who shouldn't have a gun or close certain loopholes. But at the end of the day, these kinds of shootings, I mean, when you have 10 people killed in California and then 24 hours later, there's a shooting where 12 people are killed. Uh, you know, sometimes this doesn't make the news, but but this time it did. We're not hearing about the thoughts and prayers, even though we did hear that from uh, the president over the weekend, that the families are in the thoughts uh, of the first family. We have heard from a number of politicians 
politicians, including from the president and the vice president, who's a California native, that more needs to be done to stop the violence. Problem is, this is a Democratic president who's now living with a split government. It is going to be very difficult to get additional legislation put through. And and not to try to skew the you know, the president's priorities, but he's got his own problems in his own backyard right now. Let's swing over to that if we can. Uh, a, a more a, a revelation of more documents that were found uh, in his Delaware home. We're we're understanding. Uh, I, I know some of his staff are trying to downplay this and say, well, yeah, they're not really relevant, and they go back a long ways, and he's always taking documents. Uh, but uh, they're trying to separate the Trump story from the Biden story here, uh, and they're having some difficulty doing it, Reggie. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the president himself, uh, his staff may be trying to downplay it. He himself tried to downplay it last week uh, when he made a comment from California that there was no there there, that these documents are simply just something that happens uh, along the line and that it's not anything kind of all too damaging. The problem being on Friday when his schedule came out and it showed that he was spending the weekend, which he usually does in Delaware, but at his Rehoboth Beach house, uh, there was a little bit of a question as to why is he not going to his actual home in Wilmington? Well, we find out it's because the Department of Justice, along with White House counsel, were working together to carry out a 13-hour search inside his home. And this is problematic. Yes, it is very different still from uh, the Trump issue. And that is because, again, DOJ and White House are working with each other. They're not having to issue search warrants and subpoenas to be able to get these documents back. But this is a growing problem for Biden because he already knew he was going to be subjected to a, a series of investigations by Republicans when they took the House. Here we are now. This is an investigation he didn't think that he would have to be dealing with. And it also coincides with what could potentially be a looming announcement for a second run in 2024. This is all kind of piling up outside of additional investigations, outside of additional abilities to try and get Congress to work together to pass things he wants. This is a mounting problem for the president and for Democrats. Well, let's talk about the perspective there and, and where this is leading. Because uh, as you reported last week, the, the president is uh, is seriously considering a second run. Says he's going to make the announcement shortly, and we don't know exactly what that's going to entail. Uh, but you know, there were some some positive signs about the economy over the last couple of weeks uh, that gave some people pause to think, you know, what maybe he's got a shot at this. And some polling that said, well, if Trump's the nominee, he can beat Trump again. Maybe not so much with Ron DeSantis, but so there was there was. I don't know about momentum, but at least a move in a positive direction for Biden. Uh, does this latest story cancel that out? I don't know if it fully cancels it out, uh, but it does create uh, a bit of a communications problem for a White House that has already struggled with communications on how to uh, get this story, you know, out there without making it seem like they're trying to cover it up. And I will point out the Department of Justice has come out to say that they asked that the White House not publicize Friday's uh, efforts to search the home in Wilmington, allowing for the process to kind of play out. And then the White House came forward. So I go again, it shows that there is cooperation here. Republicans will try to spin this and they are trying to spin this to say that this is a president who is irresponsible. This is a president who simply can't be trusted, kind of ignoring the situation down uh, at Mar-a-Lago. But this is simply just one moment in President Biden's kind of two year tenure right now. And he has had some significant legislative victories over the last couple of years that he is going to try to run on. And I think that's going to be easier for him with the new chief of staff coming in, who has kind of known to get, uh, you know, running orders and get things going. Uh, that could assist President Biden. 
if he can get over this hurdle, if he can make it towards the State of the Union and then his eventual announcement for 2024, all of that is coming out in the next couple of weeks. It's easy to focus on things right now because it takes the news, but eventually this will you know, potentially dissipate if there are no more documents found, which we don't know about. Even covering Washington for a long time, and I, would, so I want to ask you to go behind the headline here. You just talked about the uh, chief of staff. Uh, Ron Klain, of course, was uh, the, the Biden chief of staff uh, from day one, really, and he seemed to be the obvious choice. He was a big Biden supporter through those Democratic primaries, through the good, bad, and the ugly of those primaries. Uh, but he's leaving. Uh, is that usual? Uh, this late into a, a, an administration? Uh, is, does it have anything to do with the, the document stuff and the way that his staff have handled that, which many people would consider to be... Uh, Poorly, quite frankly. Yeah, look, there's no there's no question that the, the administration is facing, um, you know, a bit of pushback from within their own party about how the situation has been handled. But again, they're trying to make the kind of point that this is not the same issue as Donald Trump. And, you know, they're trying to just kind of figure out a path forward to lay blame elsewhere and allow the president to move on. Uh, the, the change of guard when it comes to uh, a chief of staff, this is not something that is uh, irregular. This happens often. And during the Trump presidency, I believe he had five different chief of staffs, uh, chiefs of staff in his four year tenure. Uh, you know, the fact that we have another one coming in for, for Joe Biden, you know, it's not unheard of. Uh, it's also not the most turnover that we've seen in an administration. Uh, and I think that what we are going to see here is this is how the uh, the president is going to get his next two years kind of rolling here. Jeff Zients is no stranger to Washington. He worked within the Obama administration. He's known for being able to fix messes, uh, including the rollout of healthcare.gov during the Obama administration. He, you know, is credited with fixing the bit of a fiasco that had been created during the Trump administration when he was Joe Biden's um, uh, coronavirus uh, coordinator. Now coming in as chief of staff, he has that ability to take whatever the policy measures are going to be that need to be put on the ground to get the the president running. Uh, He is known for being able to do that. He's not kind of well-liked within the progressive side of the Democratic Party because of his personal life, because of his ties to uh, big healthcare, big pharma, uh, big industry. He is, uh, you know, a self-made, you know, multimillionaire. But at the end of the day, he is somebody who understands how the business side of things work. And if the United States were to kind of tip itself into a recession based on how things are going right now, his economic background could be what helps the administration keep messaging on point. And I know that, you know, people are always going to try to read between this and, oh, he's, he's, he's the fall guy for the what's happening with the documents. And I, I suppose there's always going to be people make that connection. But I, but I see your point, though, about staff. I mean, you know, Jan Psaki, who was the press secretary, uh, left uh, some months ago now and, and was replaced. And we've seen this happen. It's a high profile and a very, very highly competitive job. And I, I can't imagine the pressure, Reggie, that these people are under. I mean, you know, when Obama got elected years ago, of course, Rahm Emanuel was his chief of staff, and he only lasted what a year before he moved on yeah there's there's high demand there's high pressure for this because ultimately as chief of staff not only are you keeping the executive office operations rolling and moving forward you're essentially a gatekeeper to the president and you are controlling what uh, what paper gets to the desk what phone calls get through what kind of contact the president should and should not have this is a this is a job that you know in 24 hours of a day you're working 30 to 35 hours in that day to ensure that things go smoothly and the pressure can get to people it's not something that some you know, chiefs of staff want to do for an extended period of time. There are also some who struggle in the position and ultimately find themselves pushed out. 
It's a position that serves at the pleasure of the presidency. They don't need to get any kind of, um, you know, congressional nod to get this job uh, and to do it for a couple of years and then have someone move on. It's not unheard of. And to bring somebody in who has a, a presence in Washington, who has an understanding, maybe not so much on how the political game is played, but how the business game is played. This is something the Biden administration believes is going to help them in what is going to be a pivotal point. This is this is a crucial juncture for the administration as it rolls forward with a split government and a chance to try and lay the groundwork for what the next four years could look like. Uh, very quickly, you just mentioned about the possibility of Biden making an announcement about a second run or a run for a second term anywhere. Uh, you mentioned a few weeks ago there's some speculation about whether Kamala Harris will be on the ticket. Uh, if she's not, uh, that that sends a pretty strong message. It's it's pretty usual, is it not, notwithstanding the speculation, that the ticket always stays the same for that second run. I mean, it, it, lots of times it does stay the same. A lot of times it doesn't. You know, it'll be up to the vice president as to whether she wants to try and primary a sitting president who's going for a second term and, you know, whether or not the Democratic base is going to line up behind her, line up behind Biden or line up behind neither, thinking that maybe something else is is coming. Uh, you know, it's also to be seen if there's anyone else in the Democratic Party that may try to primary the president himself. Maybe they keep uh, Kamala Harris on as vice president. There's a lot of kind of um, conjecture and 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 guess work that will play out over the next year. Uh, but the president has said that he's going to make this announcement public after the State of the Union. That State of the Union takes place on February 7th. So sometime in the next couple of weeks, we will have an idea as to what 2024's ticket looks like, whether it includes Joe Biden and potentially whether it sets up another Biden versus Trump challenge. Well, yeah. And again, if he decides not to, uh, I mean, I just wonder if that's going to bring the next 25 or 30 candidates uh, for the Democratic nomination like it did last time. It's a very confusing time. And uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on Global National as always. Reggie, thanks so much for this today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, of course, Global News uh, correspondent in uh, the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.